I do things that are fun and I try to stop doing things that are not fun. That's really like my life mantra and by extension, my business mantra. So I find the teaching so fun. I don't find the marketing that fun anymore. It used to be fun. So I could see myself teaching it, it for a while because I just love watching the aha moments with the yeah. students. My name is Ish Fade, and I'm the founder and CEO of Virtually. And I'm Will Manon. I'm course director at Forte Academy. And this is Reshaping Education, where we discuss the future of education, including online courses, boot camps, and how the internet is changing how we learn. This week, Will and I sat down with Kay He, the founder of Rad Reads and the course Supercharge Your Productivity. We got into the nitty gritty of how he went from Wall Street to Manhattan Beach running a high growth cohort based course. I hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, my name is Ish, founder and CEO of Virtually, and today I'm joined by Will Manon, my co-host, who is the course director for Forte Academy, most known for their cohort-based courses, Building a Second Brain and Rite of Passage, as well as special guest Kay He, founder of Rad Reads and the course Supercharge Your Productivity. Kay, so great to have you here today. Could you introduce yourself real quick? Awesome. Thanks for having me, Ish and Will. You guys are awesome. My name is Kay He. I am in LA right now, Manhattan Beach. I am the creator of a blog and newsletter that has evolved over the years called Rad Reads. I want to know why it's called Rad because I wanted people to use, I wanted to bring the word back into the common vernacular. Uh, and Rad means to be effortlessly cool, both of you are. So I started this blog and newsletter. And two years ago, I started teaching an online course called Supercharge Your Productivity. A lot of the DNA came from a fort of Tiago, who's a friend of mine and, and a mentor. And, and yeah, I've been running that course and we're preparing our seventh cohort. 500 students have been through it. And in another lifetime, I spent 15 years on Wall Street. Amazing. And, and Kay, that's what we just want to dive into today is that there's this just huge new industry blowing up right now. And you were there at the kind of ground floor. And who would have thought like five years ago, like, like online course creator was like a profession that you could do, but it is. And it's actually a very profitable one. So probably the place that I'd love to start is just like where it all started for you. How does somebody go from Wall Street to teaching online for a living? Yep. Wow. How much time you have? I would say that it's it all started with a good old fashioned midlife crisis. I would like to think that it was a third of a life crisis because I was 35 years old and trappings of success, Wall Street, blah, blah, blah. I looked at people 10, 15 years older than me, saw the trajectory I was on and said, is this really what the rest of my life is going to look like? So I opted out. I hit the eject button and the rest of that trajectory, including writing, blogging, podcasting, online courses, all that stuff was all accidental. There was no business plan, no Babe Ruth pointing at the outfield and hitting up, none of that. It was more just like stumbling towards that direction. So it started with content creation. I started this newsletter, 36 people were about to hit send on our 300th issue weekly. I started with a newsletter that was just link blogging, a uh, creative outlet to buy myself some time while I figured out my next move. And through that, it just opened when you show up consistently and add a little bit of value in people's inboxes every week cool shit happens. And that led to coaching, speaking, consulting, sponsorships, Patreon, 
you name some you name something in the creator economy, I've dabbled my hands in it. Probably unsuccessfully, but I've dabbled my hands in it. And then landing about, like I said, two years ago in online courses. Again, accidental. I'm a CS major. I know nothing about edu- formal education, training, and all that stuff. So the journey has been accidental. And it's quite, it's akin to Bitcoin, right? If you bought Bitcoin in 2010 and you just became an expert, at it, you would have, you're like one of the most seasoned people in Bitcoin, not because you're smart, but because you've just been in it longer than everyone else. <laughs> so I think that's the same for me and CBCs. Oh my God. And it's so interesting because I think there's so many parallels across like all of our stories. Like you went through this, I went this, uh, through this two years ago. So I was a software engineer at Facebook. Uh, I spent about a year and a half there. And I also just couldn't do it. I spent six months optimizing ad clicks and I was like, surely there's more impact on the world that I could be having, left two years ago, have been doing the drunken walk with virtually, which again, it just felt like you're I, just like you. I feel like I was just at the right place at the right time when CBCs kind of blew up. And then Will, like you were doing sales at Oracle. Oracle. And then you had to make the jump too. That's right. Yeah, I started as a student. I just found out on Twitter about these courses that didn't have that CBC designation at the time a couple of years ago. But some interesting stuff going on with a writing course I saw called Rite of Passage, jumped into that, which got me uh, you know, into that course a couple of times as a student, ultimately working as a course manager. And here we are today. And so it's interesting, Kay, I remember we actually met for the first time in a course that we were taking that was about how to launch and run courses with our friend, Billy Broas. And that was over maybe a year and a half ago or so. And when you were, I know uh, your course has evolved a lot since when we first met then. But I'm curious, in those early days, what was the transition point from just dabbling across the creator economy spectrum to launching your first cohort? Were you helping people with productivity and the demand just got so much? You said, what the heck, I might as well do this. Or was there some spark? Of yeah. yeah. I, I think that so that there was a spark in that in the about two years ago, and this is how timing, like this constant theme here, timing matters. <laughs> and timing dictate luck dictates timing often. And so the what, what was happening was about two years ago, I was a small a small business owner, creator, and just constantly putting out content, testing out new ideas. And I fell in love with an app called Notion, which unless you're living under a rock, you've probably heard of. So I was using Notion, and Notion to me, like what what it did was, yeah, the emojis and all that stuff is cool, but it was the modular approach to building solutions that I needed for myself. And I'm just enough of a tinker that I can't just take things off the shelf and use them, especially as a business owner. I needed this to work this way and this to show it this way and, and so on and so forth. So I was playing with Notion and the great thing about having an audience, uh, at that point, I probably had 17,000 newsletter subscribers, was that you could test out ideas with your audience. And so I was like, hey, I found this app. And I was writing probably a little bit too much about Notion at the time, but I was writing a, a lot about it. And two things happened. One, I became one of the world's experts on Notion. And again, that's, that doesn't seem as highfalutin as it is because like I was just one of the first. So that happened. And then my audience started to hear about it and they went to try to use it. And it was like giving someone a box of Legos with no instruction. They're like, I know that I could build a Game of Thrones dragon, Frank Geary building, or Princess Castle with these blocks, but I have no idea how to do it. And so then the light bulb went off. And that's when I started my first course, which was like a Gumroad page, which was just like a self-serve, no sale, just, hey, this app's cool and I'll teach you how to use it in six, five weeks, 500 bucks. 
And uh, that was how, how I got started with my first cohort. And I believe it sold like 12 grand in revenue. Yeah. And this is interesting. So give us like a quick idea of the timeline here. What year is this all taking place? So this is September of 19. Okay. September of 19. Yeah. COVID hasn't happened yet. Nobody knows what cohort-based courses are. Why did you decide to create a cohort-based course? Why did you decide Oh, wait, no, to go September of, God, my, my timing is getting all screwed up. So COVID was 20. No, so it was September of 18. September 18. Wow. September so 18. this was nearly two years before yep. COVID. Yeah. yeah. The, the term cohort-based courses had not even been coined yet. Oh, yeah. And, and was this what we think of cohort-based courses today? Was this like live... Kind yeah. of group-based, start Zoom, and end date. Zoom, Zoom calls with Slack group. Yeah. And I mean, what, what gave you the insight? Nobody was running courses like this. Uh, I guess maybe Tiago well, at this point. Bill. I got to give credit, yeah, to, to Tiago. And I'll never forget because I, 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 I had these ideas. And, and we actually launched a paid webinar before that. So if you want to talk about that as like dipping my toe, then we can. But Tiago, I went to Tiago. I'm like, hey, I've got all these ideas productivity and notion and, and changing jobs. And what should I do with this? And I'd seen the success of building a second grade or the early traces. I mean, it was successful then. Look at it now. And, and he said, he's okay, hey, just make it this. I was like, should I do a productivity course or this or that? And he said, just, just make it a, the weird mishmash of your personality and your interests. That's what, that was his advice to me. And I said, ah, okay, that's, that's how I've been rolling as an online creator anyway. So it's very on brand. And so I just copied him and, and put up the sales page and, and had Zoom links and like a loose idea uh, of a curriculum. And that's really how it started. So, so Tiago gave me the idea for it. Yeah. Yeah. And okay, how has the course, the actual process of evolution changed? I'm sure there has been evolution and the course itself has changed, but is the rate of change different in those early days? Versus now, just maybe take us through that growth and how yeah. things feel different from one to you know where you are now. Yeah, so I think that there were there's been a few big changes in it, and I'll talk about it both from a business perspective and from an instructor perspective. The biggest change from a business perspective is that I don't know how to sell, or I didn't know how to sell, and so I was the the guy that said. Hey, here's feature one. Here's feature two. Here's feature three. Buy my course. You like me. And that actually worked for the first cohort. I believe the first cohort were all, I hadn't monetize, asked to monetize my list in four and a half years at that point. I think people were like, you've given us so much value for free. I'm just going to buy this to, to thank you. So I think that was the first like 10, 12 grand of revenue in that first cohort. But then I learned, and again, this was heavily influenced by Tiago. I learned how to sell. And specifically, I, I learned the art of copywriting through that, where we met through Billy, I believe, Bross's intensive accelerator. So I learned that, and that one was hard. And I, you like, Billy makes you do the work, he doesn't do it for you. But once I internalized those ideas, just like hockey stick growth, then the next cohort, it was a complete game changer. So that was the first milestone. The second milestone that I think was a big, was COVID, which was around then the people were, I, I used to have to explain to people how there was this whole onboarding sequence. There's this app called Zoom. Click on this, download it and install it. You could put it on your phone. There's this other app called Slack and COVID just boom. It wasn't weird. The stigma of learning online was gone. 
And I had a nice win at my sales there. So that was the second one, March of last year. And then the third one was this last cohort that was in uh, February of this year, where I had started to, I actually saw the notion hype cycle, the Gartner hype cycle play out in my course, where the first couple of cohorts were the power users. They want to teach me every freaking formula, roll-ups and this and this. And now people are coming and they're like, actually, I want your method, Kay. And you're telling me notions they have to use. I'll learn notions. So it was a really interesting shift there. So you saw the product go through its own hype cycle. Because keep in mind that people have moved on. They're at Rome, or I don't even know what's Remnote or whatever, whatever fuck's next. So people have moved on. But that was one thing. So all these beginners came in. They cared less about the tool. But the other thing was, and if you follow Radreads for a while, the, the informal tagline of Radreads is come for the productivity, stay for the existential. So it's about, it's productivity as a gateway to your soul. And that's the way I write. It's the way I tweet. Just today, I tweeted about like marital problems and insecurities. That, that's, who, that's who I am. And I think people have started to pick up on that. And they're like, there's something different here. And, and Tiago and I are very different in our brands in that way. He's, I always say, he is like the, the nerdy act, like he can explain the nuts and, and bolts. And I'm like the, I'm like the emo, like the, the guy who wants to like sit and weep with you. And, and so people were, were starting to like, be like, I want exposure to that part too. But they're like, don't really know where, how to get it, where, and I don't really know how to deliver that. But that's a, that's not a productivity product project per se, but I started to dip that into this last course and it was very simple. I said, the Toyota five whys, like you ask five whys for real. Like, why did you take this course? Why did you take this course? I want more time. I want this. And then you got to the fifth why people were crying. They're like, my parents sent me off to boarding school and I'm still to this day trying to understand if they did it because they didn't love me. And I think that being better at work, like being more productive is the answer. And you right away, I threw them into this like existential wormhole without really knowing what the F was going to happen. But I threw them in there and knowing they knew me. So they weren't like totally caught off guard, but they were caught off guard because they were doing it instead of me doing it. And then I just kept pulling harder on that piece because I think they're intertwined. It's like when you ask someone, I want more time. You're like, why do you want more time? Good chance in there that there's a fear of death in that quest for more time. Yeah. or fear of ego death. And so in that last course, I found this like weird equilibrium of, yo, we're still going to bang on the productivity side, but we're also going to thread this kind of existential narrative throughout the course. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and Kay, one of the things I'm seeing these like parallels, which is really interesting, which is that you're identifying that like your audience has changed over time. And the analogy that keeps coming up in my mind is actually George Moore's Crossing the Chasm. And he talks about when you're initially selling a product, you have to sell it to a very small niche of people. Mm. People who are like the, they're like the innovators, yeah, right? They're the people who are nerding out about the craziest niche topics in the world. Things like productivity apps like Notion. They're the people who are crazy enough to buy products like this. Mm. But if they love the product, they will yell their praise they will shout it from the rooftops and they'll start then dropping in like the early majority which is people who they're not like the innovators they they look for a little bit of validation before they set foot 
Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's like the transition that you're going through, which is, hey, like you're now like you're opening up to a more mainstream audience because yeah. like these you created a product that these like early innovators love. And I feel like every course has to go through this. Totally. Like I think everybody wants to go for the mainstream. They're like, I want a course that anybody can take, mm-hmm. but they don't know that to get there, you have to focus on this like really weird, like insanely niche yeah. market that doesn't even seem like you could build a business there. But that's totally. the beauty of the internet. It enables totally. the marketplace for the craziest niches that you never would think would have enough people interested in. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's not just courses, right? That's product design, period. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Something interesting, Kate, when you're talking about having a productivity, ostensibly a productivity course, but then when you really get into it over a multi-week live cohort and this human element comes out and these deeper topics shine through, I'm very curious how you strike a balance between indulging in those deeper topics for the people who want it while staying on track for the people who are just there for the surface level productivity. For our courses, we think about this a lot where it's like, what's the minimum viable path to get what the course promises? And then how do you yeah. get the people who want it more? How do you think about that balance? Very difficultly and like Ish said, it's a drunken walk. I think that it helps that my the brand itself is built on that dual. So you're not surprised. And then there's part of the attraction to the brand is that that it is that. So I think that's the first one. We took a very actual, very like a left brain way of thinking, and we just literally split it in 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 half. Where it's like Tuesdays are the existential and Thursdays are the productivity, and we find the bridge between the two. And so we literally split it uh, in half. And and then I think this is where the kind of course creation side is getting more complicated as it becomes more complex and more mature, where you have to find the, you have to strike that right balance. Again, as you get to a more and more mass audience, you actually issue, you actually need to like re-niche again. It's this weird, it's this weird thing. And, and so we're trying to figure that out. And then maybe it be, it. And I also need to stop myself because I actually like the existential stuff way more than the productivity stuff. So I need to restrain myself a bit because I would just do that like 80-20. So a lot of iteration, a lot of customer interviews, tons and tons of customer interviews on the hoarding, offboarding, and a lot of product iteration where, you know, finding little ways to test it in, in other pockets. But I would, I'd be lying if there's like a real process. I think there's a lot of a finger in the wind. Yeah. And it's, I love all these like parallels with product design because that's what it is. And I don't, I think a lot of people, when they think about cohort-based courses or building any sort of online course, they think of it as like a one-way communication, which is you build this product, you sell it, and then it, whether it either sells or it doesn't. But the beauty of these cohort-based courses is that you can do this tweaking, like cohort to cohort, everything is like a fresh start. And you get to play around with all these like hundreds of different variables figure out what works, what doesn't, and iterate upon it. And that gives you a flexibility that traditional online courses just don't. Totally. I, I do. I think it's akin. It's a little bit like a DJ where you have to read the room and you have to know, okay, it needs like a little bit more bass right now. And to the point that we don't, and, and I always joke with my team, I'm like, I bet Tiago has every single slide mapped out weeks in advance. Like we, we don't. We have an outline in Notion And then we are designing the slides each week because of that DJ effect. 
because we're okay, let's push a little bit harder on this one because they were really responding here, which is actually makes the four weeks quite stressful. But it is to that point. It's, it's you're iterating, you're even iterating in between lectures. Yeah, I understand. We find that too. You, there's that you can plan ahead of time up to a point, mm-hmm. but then you have to be responsive uh, to that feedback and to even subtleties that isn't explicit feedback, which is trends you're noticing of attendance. Yeah or the amount of engagement you get off of a question that you ask to the group. I think it's interesting. I'm curious your thoughts on this. I think this is different from how traditional education has been. Our newest team member, our director of operations, she comes from the world of academia. She spent 20 years in academia. And when we were stress testing Tiago's latest ideas, she said, Tiago, I really admire you. I haven't seen teachers in academia accept feedback on their semester plans. It was like this revolutionary thing from her perspective. To me, it, it it seems so natural, but I guess maybe that's this education coming, coming, stemming from a different industry. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. But I, thought yeah, I don't, I have very, I have beginner's curse or beginner's blessing or, or I'm avoiding the expert's curse in that I, I don't, the only thing I know about education is that I went to college <laughs> and that was 21 years ago, 20 years ago. I don't even, yeah, forget Zoom. They didn't even have, uh, Blackberries back then. So that's the only that's the only point of reference that I have for education. But I do think that there's a parallel, and I think this is this might be a little insight as to people who might have a, a chance for outside success here is that most people that are running CBCs, I think, from my vantage points, have some kind of audience, and from having an audience, they are used whether it's creating weekly videos like Marie Poulin or Tiago's newsletter, or David's tweeting and newsletter. We only know a world with daily feedback loops. So the thought that you could sit and plan a syllabus out for December 2021, I don't even know what tomorrow is going to look based on the feedback. And so I think that we're so trained that way. We, every tweet is a point of feedback, literally. And we're trained that way and we think that way. And so I think we apply that to, to our course. And I think that leads to this crazy rapid iteration. Yeah. And I think with, with universities, they've, to some degree, like it's as an institution, it's become complacent. Like it's so established that there's always going to be this amount of students coming in, this much revenue and professors, they're so removed from the recruitment and marketing process for them. It's all about, Hey, I have your curriculum. I just delivered over and over again. And then we send these students off. But the thing I love about these education entrepreneurs that are emerging is that unlike universities that have this established student base, they have to start from scratch and they have to win their students every single day. Mm-hmm. And that means you have to be better than the yep. traditional model. You have to iterate. You have to be more lean. And I think this, believe it or not, I really believe that core-based courses pose a real threat to university because now you're having these people, industry experts who are teaching topics that are way more relevant to what's being taught in college. And they're being taught for one a fraction of the cost, but you can learn these really important career skills in weeks, not years. Tell me that's not a 10 times better experience than going to graduate school and paying like $200,000. So, so I'm, I'm in the other school of thought here. I went to a good university. I went to Yale and I'm on the fundraising committee there. So I can pick up the phone and call a complete stranger. And we just happen to graduate the same year and we can have a one hour conversation. And that's not weird. That is 
that's remarkable to me that I can do that. So that, that's one thing. I think the other thing is credentialing. I think that, and again, I don't know where it drops off, but I know that because my degree says Yale on it, people will always look at me different. Whether that's justified or not, that's a different story. But that that means so much. So I think until you can replicate that, and again, Yale might be different than the school number 400 on the list, but in, until you can replicate that, and again, there's so many dimensions to this, I think that humans and corporate off are lazy. They don't want to go and understand what's the difference between building a second brain and supercharger productivity, and how does that pair with Joe Schmo's accounting course and Layla's Excel course? They're just like, oh, they went to... He went to Yale, they went to USC, they went to probably baseline intelligence that gets them in. So I do agree that the cost benefit, I think you can make, you can replicate the experience and the skill set for sure. Then you're going to have to find a way to get the, the credentialing. Like the example I use, I always think about Bill Simmons, right? Like Bill Simmons, remarkable brand name, remarkable, so good, so talented. He couldn't make it on his own. He needed the distribution. He had to go back into Vox. So as talented as he was, he couldn't replicate the ESPN success without ESPN. So he had to go to Vox or, or, or wherever. And so I do think that there are the other side of the transaction, the, high, the person who hires the college graduate, they need to change. And enforcing that change is a much, that's, they're less incentivized to change than the people who might not be able to afford going to college and this might be their only option. Yeah, so. but, I, but I actually think it can happen. And here's the evidence of where that I am seeing it happen. So last summer, my company virtually went through Y Combinator and Y Combinator is, was the first ever remote batch and it's a startup accelerator, but in a lot of ways it is a cohort-based course. It's only three months, but the way you've described your relationships with kind of fellow alumni at, at uh, Yale, I feel the same way with like my fellow batchmates from YC. Yep. There are other founders and we have this shared trauma of starting a tech company mm-hmm. together. And last week, one of them messaged me on Slack and is, hey, I'm going through co-founder breakup. And we got mm-hmm. together on a call and we just talked it through. Mm-hmm. And that kind of camaraderie, again, it's a little early to say it's there. Yeah. And then also when it comes to credentialing, because I went through YC, I can get a meeting with any investor mm-hmm. in the yeah. world. It gets yeah, my yeah. And that is a three-month-long program. Granted, it's full-time and it's very intensive yeah. and very difficult to get in. That being that, said, yeah. it's showing signs of what we saw with institutions. Totally. And I think the thing, like YC is Yale in that regard, where it's 3%, 6% acceptance rate. I, th- there will be a tiering, too, based on the prestige of the cohort, which, yeah. So that could, we can think that the conversation in a lot of different directions. Another- it was someone we talked with uh, Gagan Biani about who's building a company to, as we know, you know, help other cohort-based course creators. There's going to be this second wave of bundling. And I think once that bundling happens, some of that can help compete with maybe some of the tier two, three, four, five, six type universities. But yeah, mm-hmm. a lot to be said on that front. Hey, I'm not going to let you go without getting into more of the details of running yeah. your course because I really want to, uh, first of all, learn from you and have people listening learn from you too. I'm curious, you mentioned your team. Yeah. Take us through the, the team. You're the conductor of this orchestra. I know it's gotten bigger than it was in the yeah. past. Who, who, what are the pieces there? Yeah. So there are still zero full-time employees besides me. I'm the only full-time employee. And when I say team, two cohorts ago, I hired a virtual assistant and she has been my main partner 
and recently was is was promoted to course manager. And so she is my only other employee. I work with a lot of contractors, SEO, design, WordPress, brand identity, that kind of stuff. So I, I hire a lot of contractors to scale myself. And now, again, very inspired by what you guys are doing at Second Brain, we have, we have a bunch of contractors. So, so we have in this cohort, this upcoming cohort, we have, I believe, six, we call them teaching assistants. So they're paid teaching assistants, contractors. And then we have 11 alums who are mentors, who are basically unpaid volunteers to, to support the guard. And their path is mentor to paid assistant and then plug it into bigger parts of the machine. So that's the, the team. I'm at an interesting point because I, have, I very much want this to be a lifestyle business. So I'm not particularly interested in growth for growth's sake. And to be completely blunt or frank, I had a good amount of savings from my Wall Street days. Definitely not the kind of savings where you could take a few years off, but not the kind of savings where you can live in Manhattan Beach and put you know two kids through college and not CBCs. So I'm at this, there's a tension, which is like, how do you grow? How do you grow responsibly? How do you grow in a way that is aligned with your values, but also what you want? in in life while at the same time know that like i'm i know i'm i we run an awesome course people love it and i know that i'm my own bottleneck like i'm still writing the copy i was the course manager until two cohorts ago and so there is this point where i'm gonna have to make a decision which is do i actually grow and i i would similar to what tiago's done i would bootstrap i would self-fund it uh, i would fund it out of its profits that being said this interesting side note is that I, I got a pitch deck from a friend of a friend who's running like a B2B education company and they raised some money and they shared their deck and they're struggling and they have like seven, six employees and the financials were identical. But the, the financial, the revenue was the same as Brad Reed's. They, the margins, our margins like 90%, um, 95%. And theirs were like 30 and they were basically going to shut down. And I was like, it was like the first time, because I still don't believe that this is a business in the sense that I've just been a creator doing shit for yeah, six years. Yeah. It's kind of what does K want to do today? That's kind of how I live my life. And so there is a tension. And I do think I have a responsibility because we, we do have product market fit and a great product that impacts people. We have a responsibility to make it better and get more people into it. I also think I have a responsibility to my team. I know I have a responsibility to my team because not all of them can say that they have accumulated the savings that they want to have accumulated at their, this point in their life. So I feel a strong, I want it, I want them to share in the spoils of the great thing that, that, that we, we've done so far. And I'm sick of writing copy. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine after that many uh, that many launches, I know yeah. the emails that go into each one of those. Gosh, really interesting to hear you talk about that. There's certainly differences, but also plenty of parallels between what I've been talking to Tiago about with Second Brain. You get to this point and it's, are we really going to do this and try to build an organization around this beyond sort of the, the contract model and have W2 employees and all that? I'm curious, have you ever considered the possibility where you wouldn't even be the person, the primary teacher of Rad Reads, but 
you enable other people who are very highly trained facilitators to be in that role, almost Seth Godin, the way he interacts yeah. with the NBA. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. If, if you've seen my, my, my matrix of leverage and prioritization, that would be the ultimate. Solving that is the ultimate 10K work. It's a little bit. So the one thing is I just, I do things that are fun and I try to stop doing things that are not fun. That's really like my life mantra and by extension, my business mantra. So I find the teaching so fun. I don't find the marketing that fun anymore. It used to be fun. So I could see myself teaching it it for a while because I just love watching the aha moments with the students. That being said, I do. and, And there's a challenge, right? Because and you too would be a better gauge of this than me, but my r- approach to writing is much more personal than Tiago's. And so it, it would be hard to, I can't ghostwrite that. So I'd have to like, I, I'd have to basically separate the brand from my personality, mm. which is definitely Seth Godin did it. It just seems very difficult to do that. I think this is probably... One of the things that like as the creator economy matures, people are going to find quite problematic. I don't know. I think at some, yeah, I don't want to write a weekly newsletter for the rest of my life. So at some point, I think some separation will be necessary, but I don't, I'm not particularly interested in like the friend, not that you are insinuating this, but like that, like the franchise model is not that interesting to me. I want to stay close to student experience. Got it. Got it. I know we're almost out of time here, but I I have a couple last kind of burning questions that I want to ask you, which is specifically, we talk about kind of product market fit. And I think there's this new term emerging course market fit. I'd be curious how how you define course market fit and looking ahead, like who are the like emerging CBC creators that you really are admiring or keep an eye on? Ooh, course market fit. Will people buy it? Does it convert? It would, would be the, the, the first one. The second one is, do people ask for what kind of NPS or rating do they give you on the exit? But I think that there, it's like when people start talking about your course, like YC or ODCC or BASB, and you're starting to see it, SYP, I think that there, when there is that, when people start to put some droplets of their identity into your course name. I think you found that's a sign of, have, have, of found, having found some uh, some course market fit. In terms of people that, that are watching, I, I don't know. So there's some courses that I'm excited for. Lawrence Yao from More to That. Just He's got that great illustrated blog, fellow Angelino. He just announced that he's teaching a class on visual storytelling. Nate Cadillac. Kat, has a course like design for non-designers. I think that's a great framing for courses like finance for non-investors or investing for non-finance people or coding for, you know, I think that, I think you could build a business just off. It's like, like X for dummies from the nineties. So there he's doing one. I'm, I'm excited about that one. I saw someone mention, I'll track it down for you. One, one on Holacracy. It was a workshop on Holacracy. I'll try to track that one down for you, Ro- Rosie, she's Rosie Sherry from Rosieland on community building. I'm in her course. It's it's fantastic. Those are, oh, uh, I don't think this one's going to be cohort-based, but Harry Dry from Marketing Examples is uh, going to do a course. I think that one is uh, self-serve. So. Yeah. 
Amazing. Okay, this was a super fascinating conversation, and I went on way longer than we had the kind of a lot of time for, but fun nonetheless. Are there any last minute plugs you want to give in terms of how our audience can learn more about you and keep up with RadReads? I would say all roads lead to radreads.co. Come on over, drop your name in. We're constantly doing free events. We have one free event a week, pretty much like almost all year. Tons of workshops. There's a newsletter and uh, and yeah, I'm super active on Twitter. K-H-E-M-A-R-I-D-H. But if you just Google Twitter, K is probably the faster, uh, K-H-E is probably the faster way to get there. Amazing. Kay, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, guys. And that was Kay of RadReads. If you want to learn more about Kay, head on over to radreads.co or follow Kay on Twitter. If you enjoyed that episode, Will and I would love for you to leave a review and to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. It really helps get the word out. If you want to keep up when new episodes drop, head on over to reshapingeducationpodcast.com or give Will and I a follow on Twitter. All the links will be in the show notes. With that, this is Ish and Will signing off.